about spiritual warfare and how we fight. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 13, would you stand with me as we read from God's word? Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness, the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Just before beginning my undergrad at Azusa Pacific University, I took a job as a campus safety officer. And for my first day, they put me on the graveyard shift, and I was to shadow some other officers through the campus, and it was, it was a lot of fun. We went around locking up doors and turning off lights and all of that sort of thing. And they began telling me different stories about things that had happened on the campus. Now, there was the usual antics they had, that they had to shut down, like the, the kids who had got into the school pond and were swimming around, or the midnight picnics up to, um, on top of dorm room roofs, those kind of things. And then there were the, the unsavory things that Christian college students should not be doing. I, I heard about those things. But what was really interesting were the, the unusual happenings that they started to describe. Like the, the student who supposedly in the middle of the night was awoken to picture frames on the wall of her dorms unfixing themselves from the wall and flying across the room and shattering. And I went, oh, that's kind of interesting. Or there were other stories about lights on the campus that for no rhyme or reason would just flick, flicker on and off or doors that would open and shut. And I just thought, you know, this is ridiculous, guys. You're just, you're just trying to rile the new guy, okay. But as we came to this one building, one of the newer buildings on the campus, a place called Wilden Hall, all of a sudden the mood began to change. And everyone got very serious. And as we put the key into those great glass doors and the, the locks clicked open, we entered and we were inside this cavernous, cavernous atrium. And we were greeted there by the bronze statue of Old Man Wilden. Strange things would happen in that building, they told me. And as we kind of walked around and just checked things out, sure enough, all of a sudden we started hearing voices. They, they were coming over, cascading over the upstairs railing and down into this open air where we, where we stood and and I got a little nervous. And I thought, okay, well, someone must be in here. We've got we to gotta go check this out. So we went upstairs, and I came close to the room. And it was all the doors had those, those little cutouts in them, those vertical cutouts, so you could kind of peek in. And I, and I peeked in, and sure enough, the lights were off, and I wasn't sure what was going on. But then the lights started flickering. And I thought, oh, 
okay, well, we're campus safety. We got to go in there. So we went in. To my relief, it was just a TV that was left on. And I thought, okay, all right, all right. I'm just a little edgy here. They got me riled with these stories. But then all of a sudden, a door shut somewhere else in the building. I thought, what? And then another door. And another door. And before I know it, the whole place was resounding with the chaotic clatter of doors opening and closing. And lights started flickering on and off all throughout the building. And I, did, I, I was freaking out. I knew I had to get out of there. So I ran downstairs and with the, with the guy I was shadowing by my side. And we had to go down this dark hallway. And in the dark hallway had this glow-in-the-dark strip that ran along the bottom of the wall. And as we were going down, the, the strip was illuminated. But down there, I could tell something was scribbled inside of the green glowing, glow-in-the-dark strip, and it was my name. My name. And my counterpart just yelled, run! And we ran as fast as we could. We flew out those doors, and I had never been so scared in all my life. I'm panting, I'm sweating, hands on my knees, just trying to catch my breath, and I looked up at him and said, this should not be happening on a Christian college campus we got to get some people here and pray over this building. We're going to cast out some demons. Last week we said our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We said that the enemy is very real. He's actively working skillfully and powerfully to attack those that Christ has ripped from his grasp and brought into the light. We said as God's people that we need to stand against these attacks. And we rely on God's strength, his might, and we put on his armor. But the question for today is, what does that look like? What are we to do? How do we practically engage these spiritual forces of evil? I mean, do we put on the dark clothing and get those elaborate knives and and go around hunting ghouls in the night? Is that what we're supposed to do here? How do you combat the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places? By the way, according to Ephesians chapter 2, that's where we now live. We've been raised up and seated with Christ in the heavenly places. How do children of light stand in the darkness? Now, before we get to the six pieces of armor that Paul lists off here, I think it's worth pressing pause and look for just a moment at what he does not mention, what he doesn't mention. Alistair Begg the Scottish-American pastor out in Cleveland, Ohio, he once noted in a sermon all the things that Paul does not mention as strategies for fighting these spiritual forces of evil. And I wish I could give them to you in that incredible Scottish accent and the eloquent language with which he just... He just it's, it, listening to Alistair Begg is kind of like listening to poetry. It's just, it's just incredible. But I can't do that. You're just going to have to settle for the bumbling words of this Orange County kid. Pastor Begg points out that Paul, first of all, he doesn't mention anything about territorial spirits. 
And that's the idea that the devil assigns certain demons to focus their work on certain places, like certain towns, certain communities, certain locations. That's the kind of thinking in my frightened state there, right in front of Wilden Hall. I was thinking, I was thinking, something needs to be done here. There are demons that have attached themselves somehow to this building. I had read those Frank Peretti books. I had heard Christians in my church, they talked about this kind of phenomenon happening and that the best way to, to, do, to combat these forces was to get a bunch of Christians and we hold hands and sometimes we, if we can, we surround the building and we pray over it, pray that these demons will be cast out. It's the kind of thing where you know, people think when you, when you buy a new home or you go somewhere where there's some type of fishiness going on there. This, this is the kind of thing that you do. You call in the name of Jesus Christ and you exercise these spirits. But Paul doesn't tell us to do that here. I find that very interesting. And if there's any place that demons would have been clenching on to the rooftops, it would have been Ephesus. This place was like the epicenter for magic practices. We talked about this. You know, if there were demons anywhere, it would have been in this place, Ephesus. And you would think that Paul would have said, okay, Ephesian Christians, here's how you deal with this. But he doesn't do that. In the case of Wilden Hall, the real problem there wasn't, wasn't ghouls that were lurking around. It, were, it was the goons. The goons there who were trying to frighten the new guy playing an elaborate prank, and I, uh, I think I quit my job a, a day or two after that. <laughs> but I think here, looking at Ephesians and looking what's not here, I think it's very safe to say that Paul, he doesn't tell us that that's the way to stand against the spiritual forces of evil. It's not there. So that's worth taking note of, I think. Another thing that Paul makes no mention of is what's come to be known as warfare prayer. Paul doesn't mention anything about praying against demons. Very interesting. There's nothing about demon binding. There's nothing about praying that a hedge of protection be put up so that they can't get in. He doesn't suggest that we identify, that we call out specific demons and then pray in the name of Christ against their activity. And I don't think that means that there's anything wrong with praying against the spiritual forces of evil, but I think it's interesting that it's not included in this manual that Paul is writing for the Ephesians on spiritual warfare. It's very, very interesting, isn't it? One final thing he makes no mention of is that is this idea of prayer walking prayer walking. That's where a large group of Christians, they get together and they walk around a community and they claim different streets or they claim different homes or business centers in the name of Christ. Now again, I don't think there's anything wrong with going around and praying for your community. In fact, we encourage each other to do that this Halloween. Go be out there. Be praying. I don't think there's anything wrong with that as long as you keep your eyes open. You don't want to be walking into walls or walking into oncoming traffic. But Paul doesn't suggest here that we go around planting flags. 
and claiming, naming and claiming different locations in the name of Christ. It doesn't mention that. So I think for those of us who desire to be biblical, to base our life and practice on God's word, well, it's at least important for us to take note of here. Last week we made it very, very clear that spiritual warfare, it's a big deal. Our enemy, he's very real, he's very powerful, he's very evil, he's very cunning. Therefore, we need to make sure that when we engage in battle, that we do it God's way. That we pay very, very close attention to how God has prescribed that we practice spiritual warfare. So we don't look to Stephen King, and we don't look to M. Night, M. M. Night Shyamalan, we don't look to fortune tellers, or spiritualists, or any other experts that derive their knowledge from anything other than Scripture. And I think it's also important for us to note that when we read Scripture, we should be careful not to read too much between the lines, as if God didn't make things clear for us. I mean, if we trust that God is good and that his desire is to help us, his children, his disciples, to carry out the mission that he's given us, then I think it's safe to assume that he's given his instructions in a clear, understandable way. A good teacher isn't going to overly complicate the content of what he's trying to get across to his students. In fact, the, job, the real job of a good teacher is to make it as plain and as simple and as understandable to his students or her students as possible. As God speaks through Paul to us here in Ephesians, I don't think he complicates things because he's a good teacher. When it comes to spiritual warfare, it's important that we enter into it biblically rather than direct our attention on other methods that might be out there. I mean, wouldn't you think, wouldn't it be a great strategy if the enemy tried to convince us that the best way to attack him is by his preferred means? The, the things that, that God didn't really want us to focus on. God said, do all of these things over here. The enemy says, okay, well, no, it's really about these things over here. It's like going into a battle wearing a swimsuit and lobbing water balloons. You know, it's, 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 it would just be ridiculous. It'd be like painting a target on your back and yelling, shoot me. We want to focus instead on what God has given us. And what God says, this, this is the way you fight the spiritual battle. And that's what we have before us here this morning. Christians living in a war zone, they need to pay close attention to God's instructions. We need to follow them to the letter. We need to give ourselves to them wholeheartedly, lest we leave ourselves vulnerable and ill-equipped for the struggle that we face. So that brings us to the question this morning, what does the Bible prescribe for those who are called to stand? Verse 13. Therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. I think it's important for us to realize here that when he says you, that you may be able to stand, we need to remember who he's talking to here when he wrote this book of Ephesians. He's talking to the body. 
He's talking to all of us. He's talking to the church. So when he tells us to stand, he's telling us to stand together. Now certainly when it comes to putting on the armor of God, all these things that we're going to be talking about in a minute, that's something that we do individually, right? We each put on those different aspects of the armor. Each of us has to be intentional about it. But as we do that, we need to keep in mind that we're doing it not only for our own protection, we're doing it for the protection of the body as well. If you know anything about Roman warfare, you know that certain pieces of their armor were, were, were meant to be used together, like those shields. Maybe you've seen them in some movies. They were rectangular, about four feet tall by two and a half feet wide. And the whole soldier could get behind that thing and cover his whole body. But what was great about it was they could get together and pull those shields together and they would almost interlink and form a defensive wall protecting the whole company of soldiers. Any flaming arrows that were coming, they were bouncing off or they were sticking there. They weren't getting through to those soldiers. They stood together. It's similar in our armies today. Systems that we have are very complex. They rely on the cooperation of just multiple individuals to be effective. Those of you who are veterans, you're very aware of how this works. Aircraft carriers, they're not operated by one guy behind a computer console with a joystick. No, 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 no. Instead, it takes an entire city of people to operate one of these incredible machines. I've read that our latest carrier, the USS Gerald Ford, it requires 600 fewer people than previous aircraft carriers. But it still requires a crew of 2,600 people. In the same way, we need to keep in mind we're in this together. The body is important. My attention to battle readiness impacts you as yours does me. We were never designed to be lone soldiers. Remember, when Christ saved us, he tore down that dividing wall of hostility. People who would have never associated with one another, they've now been welded together into this diverse family, a new nation, a new people for God's own possession. And as his people, we're to soldier on together, caring for one another, building each other up helping equip one another for battle. And when one of us is wounded or fatigued, we go and we care for one another. We don't leave anyone behind. And we stand by each other when we're suffering. Okay. So now how do we ready ourselves? Paul writes in verse 14, We are to stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. The first essential element of the soldier of Christ living the spiritual, in the spiritual war zone is to stand having fastened that belt of truth. It's truth that holds the Christian's whole ensemble all together. Without being firmly established in the knowledge of truth, everything else it just, it just falls apart. When I first began in student ministry 22 years ago or so, there was, 
there were some who were saying that the only thing that really mattered in the Christian life was this relationship that we have with God. And, and there's, there's something about that that resonates, right? Because after all, fundamental to the Christian life is a personal relationship with God. It's not, uh, it's not just uh, about getting online and reserving your ticket into heaven. No, you have a God who loves you. Loved you so much that he sacrificed his son for you so that you could be brought into right relationship once again with him and enjoy him and him lovingly care for you. And that's all well and good. But what some people back then were suggesting was that because the Christian life is about this relationship with God, we don't need to get bogged down with all of these doctrinal teachings, all of these high-minded, deep, you know, um, doctrinal issues. Let's not muddle around in the minute details here. After all, those are the things that divide Christians, right? And those are the things that are frankly a little boring. And when it comes to Christianity, let's just let's just be in relationship, this free-flowing kind of experiential. Let's just get the body of Christ together. We'll all hang out together and we'll all sing songs that God likes and make us feel good. It's about the experience. And there's something attractive about that. And there's there's even something good about gathering the body together and experiencing our worship of God together. There's something wonderful about that. But if we do that and take the truths of Scripture and push them out of the way, push them to the side, as if this is all this, the, the, the external trappings that we just we don't really... We'll leave that to the scholars. We, we're just the body here. Let's just, just hang out together. If we don't intentionally pour ourselves into God's Word, read, study, immerse our minds in God's truth, we run the risk of believing that this relationship that we've got to be something entirely different than what God intended it to be. We run the risk of misunderstanding God. We run the risk of misunderstanding ourselves, why Jesus came, how we are saved, how we can grow, how we can take our stand against the devil. We, we run the risk of misunderstanding all of that. If we rush to experience God without being firmly grounded in his truth, that leaves the door wide open for the enemy to come sailing in as an angel of light and lead us astray by ideas that sound good, but lead us to a place of vulnerability, possibly to our doom. This kind of thing happens all the time. In fact, Paul wrote in Galatians 1, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one preached to you, let him be accursed. I can't tell you how many times I've been in conversations with people who have been Christians for years and years, gone to church for years and years. The conversation's great, but then all of a sudden something happens and there's a turning point and they start talking about something that is nowhere found in Scripture. 
or it's a clear distortion of what is found in Scripture. And so because they've not taken the time to ground themselves in God's Word, haven't taken to heart and wrestled with the Word that has been preached over and over again to them, have not been disciplined enough to study, they run the risk of shipwrecking their faith because they've taken their eyes off of the guiding beam of the lighthouse of God's truth. Not only is knowing God's truth essential, there's, there's something else about truth that is important. And it's that we not only know God's truth, but we are truthful people. This is one of the ways that we guard ourselves. We base our lives on the truth that God has given to us. And we're truthful to each other. We know that our enemy, he's a liar. He's the father of lies. And he'd love nothing better than for, to infiltrate our churches and cause God's people to begin deceiving one another, lying to each other. And if that happens, well, he's, he's winning. His work is being done. And we're doing it for him. <laughs> that cannot happen. The enemy wants us to believe lies. He wants us to speak lies. But we're not going to let that happen. Because we're going to be people who are committed to knowing the truth and living out the truth. This is the first piece of the armor of God. Secondly, Christian soldiers, they need to put on the breastplate of righteousness. The Gospel of Jesus tells us that we are not righteous on our own, right? None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks after God, Romans 3.10. That's why we came to the cross. That's why we came here in the first place. That's why we looked to Christ's perfect sacrifice, and we said, I am not perfect, I got nothing, and I need what Jesus did for me. That's what I need. I need to shed blood that washes away each of my stains, all of my guilty shame. Titus 3, three. we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, hating one another. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. The enemy will come at you and encourage you to think that the messiness of your life, yes, our lives are messy even now. We are not perfect, not by a long shot. But he will encourage you to think that the messiness of your life, that that disqualifies you for the love of God and for your security that you have, your place as a member of God's kingdom. How could he possibly love you after all of the awful things that you have done, the things that you have thought, the vile things that have come from your mouth? But as we remain firmly grounded in God's truth, we know, ah, that's just a lie. It's just a lie from the pit of hell. And we know, because we've put on as our breastplate the righteousness of Christ. 
And because of his righteousness, those kind of attacks, they should just go bouncing right off of us. Yes, I know. I know I'm guilty. I know I'm a sinful person. I know my life is messy. I know it's not perfect even now. But I am resting in the righteousness of Christ. God's truth tells us in Romans 8.1, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It protects us. His righteousness, it protects us from the onslaught of enemy attack. Not only does the righteousness of Christ protect us, but another aspect of the breastplate of righteousness is the fact that as we now start exemplifying righteous, right, godly living in our lives, that's a form of protection as well. Because when we make compromises in our lives, we leave ourselves vulnerable to attack. When we secretly look at those things that we know we shouldn't be looking at. When we tweak the numbers of our tax returns so that they're just a little bit more favorable for us. When we cut corners. When we're dishonest about the hours that we worked. Or we tell our spouses we were one place when we were really somewhere else, when we throw others under the bus for personal gain, when we take what is not ours, when we do all these type of unrighteous things, we leave ourselves vulnerable. Our defenses come down and we're open to attack. Not only are we opening ourselves up for attack, but we open the church up for attack as well our brothers and sisters in Christ. I'll never forget my senior year of high school when my youth pastor had to get up in front of the church and talk about the unrighteousness that had been in his life. It was devastating. But the person whose way is pure lives a righteous life. They protect themselves They protect their family. They protect their reputation as Christ's ambassador. The Christian soldier, he wears truth. He or she wears truth, wears righteousness, also wears the shoes of the gospel of peace. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. When we lose sight of the gospel, when our focus goes to other things, we take our focus off of Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished for us, we start thinking that we're somehow good enough on our own, that's when we stop relying on God's grace. And when we stop relying on God's grace and start thinking that we've got some goodness in and of ourselves, well, we stop extending grace to other people. And then peace goes away. It's kind of like standing barefoot on a slippery rock. You just, you just lose your footing and you just, you just fall. And all of a sudden, your world is in chaos. When we fail to extend gospel grace, peace just evaporates. It just goes away. And we create an environment of suspicion, of distrust, tension. It's now about competition. We invite rumors, secrecy accusations, discord, arguments. People get sensitive, don't they? Some withdraw. Others become really aggressive. We have lost peace because we've lost sight of the gospel. We're not practicing it in our own lives and we're not giving it out, the grace of Jesus Christ, to other people. 
as Christian soldiers, we have to keep the gospel of Christ front and center. It needs to be paramount in our minds. It's because of Jesus that we have peace with God. And it's because of Jesus and the grace that he freely gives us that we have peace with each other. Putting on the shoes of the gospel of peace, it means embracing the gospel. It means living it out in our relationships with one another. It means being gracious to one another, slow to anger, slow to suspicion, quick to love, quick to forgive. Gospel of peace, truth, righteousness, the gospel of peace. We also need the shield of faith. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And this faith that he's talking about here, this isn't wishful thinking. It's not like believing in your dreams. That's not the kind of faith that he's talking about. Hoping that something happens that you wish would happen, but you have no reason to actually believe will happen. Faith is trusting in what you know to be true. It's taking the truth that you have learned in God's word and standing on it. Faith is trusting what you know to be true. So when the enemy comes at you with those lies that say, you're too bad for God to love you, when he bombards you with doubt, when he comes at you with worry, depression, fear, lust, anger. Instead of giving in, you recall the truths of Scripture that you have learned, and by faith, you stand on them. You stand on them. You rely on them. I stand alone are the Word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. That is how faith is used as a shield. The flaming arrows of the evil one, they just come sailing in, but you recall the truths of Scripture that you have come to believe and holding firmly to them, holding them in the forefront of your mind, you say, no, these are lies from the pit of hell. They are from the devil. I am standing by faith on the truths of Scripture. I'm standing by faith in my God. The believer's armor, armor, it's truth, it's righteousness, the gospel of peace, faith. It's also the helmet of salvation. Take the helmet of salvation, Ephesians 6.17 says, the Christian soldier stands with confidence in the face of the enemy because she knows, she knows that she has been saved. And not only does she know that she has been saved, but she knows that full salvation is on its way. And it's guaranteed. Remember when Paul told us in Ephesians 1.13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were what? You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Those who trust in Jesus, they have salvation. Now, you and I, if you've placed trust in Jesus like me, you, you and I have salvation right now. You've been saved by grace through faith. But you're also looking forward because full salvation is coming. The perfection of this salvation, the full fruition of it, the full manifestation of it, it is on its way and it is guaranteed for us. So your body may be failing. 
Your family may be falling apart. Your finances may be in ruins. Your failure to obey God time and time again may be like thrown up like a billboard with flashing lights in your face, 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 and yet you know the one in whom you have believed. You know that his resurrection from the dead, it proves that he was who he said he was and he accomplished what he came to accomplish. You know your faith is in him. You know that you're one of his people. You know that he has gone to prepare a place for you. And you know that the day is coming when you're going to be in paradise with him for eternity. Christians, stand tall and fight. For you know that you have been saved and you know that the day of your full salvation is near. Finally, Paul says, we need the sword of the Spirit which he clearly says is the word of God. Paul's inventory of spiritual armor, it began with God's word when he said truth, that belt of truth, that's God's word. We have God's truth right here. And it was given to us, Paul describes it, as a defensive piece of armor. Now he concludes by circling back to God's truth. He says, this not only holds everything together for your defensive armor, this is your weapon. This is your sword. In the book of Revelation, the glorified Christ is described as having a sharp, two-edged sword coming from his mouth, Revelation 1.16. And what a fitting description for Christ. The Word of God speaks, he's the one who speaks words with razor-sharp precision. We read in Hebrews 4.12, the word of God, who is Jesus, in this book we have, living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, Hebrews 4.12. It was the word of God, wasn't it, that pierced our own hearts, pierced our own hearts. It cut through that darkness It convicted us of our sin. It loosed the chains that once bound us, delivered us from the hands of the enemy, brought us into the kingdom of God. When you speak the words of Scripture, you deal cutting blows to the enemy. Every time you and I speak God's truth and point others to the hope that they can have in Christ, we stab at the spiritual forces of evil. And it's by proclaiming God's word that God's kingdom advances. God's word is a weapon for evangelism. It can also be used to fight off temptation, as we saw Jesus do in the wilderness. Satan came at him again and again and again. And what does Jesus do? He quotes scripture. Each time the tempter came knocking, Jesus hammered back with God's word. Christian When the enemy dangles carrots in front of your face, whatever your carrot may be, when the tempter comes calling, speak the word of God, and he will run. James 4, 7 says, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. This is how we resist. We use the word of God. It has cutting power. So truth 
righteousness, the gospel of peace, faith, the reality of our salvation, the piercing sword of God's word. This is how we defend. This is how we fight. This is how we soldier on. But what about those magic books? What about those chants? What about the amulets? What about those formulaic prayers? What about the territorial spirits and the prayer walks and the warfare prayer? Well, when we look to God's word, we're not seeing that. We're seeing the gospel of Christ central to every piece of armor that you and I have. And that is where the battle is fought. And that is where the battle is won. We know the gospel is all about the victory that Christ has had. And as we cling to the gospel of Jesus Christ, we share in that victory. Christ has provided his army with all that it needs to stand and fight. It's all found in him. But it's left to us to take it up, put it on, and stand. So be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the equipment that you have given us. And thank you, Jesus, that it is found in you. It's all about you, Lord. And that's why you get all the glory. It's because of you that we're here. It's because of you that we are in the light. And it is by you that we stand against these spiritual forces of evil, Lord. Because evil has no power against you. Help us to cling to you in faith, trust in your righteousness. Help us to hold fast the gospel. Lord, help us to be firmly grounded in your truth. Help us to fill our minds with scripture that we might be able to stand when the tempter comes. We may be able to give those blows because we're clinging to you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.